Good morning and welcome back to our faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls. It is part eight of a feast for crows. Hello, I am Sir Berkeley, your head green person for this little walk back through Song of Ice and Fire, and I am talking to you from a gloriously sunny England slash other faces. Yes, it is an amazing day of weather out there. I don't know if it's because I watched Princess Mononoke yesterday, I'm just in that kind of nature groove, but you know I like the sun anyway. And yes, the dog walk this morning was rather glorious, so I am pumped full of that solar energy, ready to share it with you. However, I am talking to you from a slightly different part of the aisle today. You might already be able to hear I am recording from the living room today, instead of the usual bedroom desk, because unfortunately Lady Buckley went away for a weekend trip to see her family has come back with an illness of some food poisoning, I think. She's not had a good night of it at all, so the bedroom has been given over to her today. She's recovering having a nice sleep we're going to talk down here instead so slightly different might sound uh, a bit off might have more uh, bumps and scuffles and stuff like that my apologies i'll do my best with my editing uh, we might also have the princess zelda come and visit us because the downstairs is her domain so you might be lucky enough to hear a snuffle or a whine possibly more likely i expect and uh, yeah we'll see how it goes hopefully the postman won't be knocking too loud or anything like that but we'll see I'm sure you will join me in <laughs> hoping Lady Buckley feels a bit better soon anyway, so I think this is the least we can do as a aisle, isn't it? Like I say, pumped full of that solo energy, just happy after watching Princess Mononoke, because I just love that film so much. But also, I wanted to briefly talk, before we get going here with part eight and with our three chapters only today, I wanted to briefly talk about other book series, because it's just come up a little bit in the last week or so, talking with other people on Twitter. I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, I've certainly mentioned it on Twitter. But for me, the Wheel of Time series, which I'm sure many of you are big fans of, huge, sprawling series, even bigger than Song of Ice and Fire, I don't know, I think it's 12 books it ends up at, 13, someone correct me. Um, but for me, that's kind of a weird series, because I was very, very into that in my teen years, 13, 14, and then had a bit of a rough time of it, and I'm sure you're all the same, some things you just end up associating with said bad time you don't want to go back to them uh, i'm sure whatever lady buckley ate yesterday might come into that category but for me uh, i was on book five fires of heaven i think and yeah had this rough time and just stopped reading them and didn't ever want to go back just couldn't muster up i'm sure you know the, the kind of thing i'm talking about but i've had that curiosity lately i don't i'm not really sure what started it they're still up on my bookshelf those first five i see them every now and then i think oh, i could get back in and obviously i know half the series or well this was 15 years ago so i remember some of it and but i wonder where it goes and where it all leads and i've been talking to some people on twitter about that and they've been very encouraging and say oh, we should pick them back up it's a good fandom which is a completely different aspect of course there was none of that uh, 15 years ago or not that i was aware of anyway i definitely wasn't interacting so that'd be a, a completely different experience what i've actually been doing is just going on the wiki and reading some chapter summaries in the first one or two books and all you know what it's like it all sparks up the memory oh yeah i remember this person that uh, plot these great world building um, facets which obviously robert jordan was incredibly good at and yeah it just sparks that interest and i don't think i will go back to reading not yet at least chapter summaries are enough for me at the moment i've also been talking to a good friend at queen sansa's fury on twitter she's been talking about lies of lock the mora and the uh, gentleman bastard sequence which i'm two books into started reading that last year or possibly the year before and i know i've talked about this on the podcast before they've just 
blown my mind open because I kind of thought A Song of Ice and Fire was it for me in terms of being like wowed by a series. Read loads and loads and loads and loads as a child and then got a bit older, thought it was a bit uncool, stopped doing it so much, apart from Terry Pratchett, he's always been a constant. And then A Song of Ice and Fire was the first one to really grab me in a good number of years. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen again. But I was proven wrong, not only by Gentleman Bastard sequence, but also the uh, the King Killer Chronicles, Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear. They grabbed me. They grabbed me first, actually. Then came Lice Lot Lamora and Red Seas Under Red Skies, and that probably blew me away even more. So I, I'm only bringing this up because I'd be interested to hear from you guys. I'm always in a Song of Ice and Fire mood because I'm always working on it or talking about it or yeah, doing something with it. But today I'm not as much in a mood. I'm going to talk about it in a moment, sure, because that's the job of the podcast. But I've just been thinking about these other series and Princess Mononoke and The Wheel of Time and Gentleman Bastard sequence. So I'd just like to hear from you. Send your answers in. Get in contact. Tweet at me at Sir Buckley. Email idlefacespodcast at gmail.com. If you're a patron, you know how to get in touch. Just let me know what other ones are, what other series, what other mediums or whatever. What else really really gets you going what else gets you so you might be reading it now you might have read it in the past but just get in touch it might be wheel of time i know many of you out there are and gentlemen bastards of course like uh queen sansa's fury just uh let me know because it's good to share that kind of thing isn't it but anyway that's my little <laughs> pre-rant i'll get going i suppose i've just got the princess monarchy music in my head i can't get it out but i will try and <laughs> shut that down for now as we get down to part eight of the feast for crows and like i said at the beginning this is our outlier this is our free chapter episode that's why we've got to fit it in so it works out a bit later for having sets of four and this is how aziz and the share decide to do it. it is free today and i think as he's mentioned on twitter i saw yesterday how these are big free chapters so it's not like it's going to be all that much shorter to be honest with you and also coincidentally just so happens is at the same time as george releasing he's finished three more winds of winter chapters and i'll be honest the first time I saw that news, it was from Jeff from Brendan Beefish. She was tweeting about it. And I just assumed it was Jeff being Jeff and it was a joke of some sort. I just scrolled right on past it. But now he's always he's mentioned it as well. So then I checked. And yes, George is moving forward. Win. So that's always good to hear, isn't it? Talking of things that get us invigorated and get us going. I think news of wins always does that. But for today, we're still in feast. We're right into the second half now. About two thirds, I guess we are today, aren't we? And we have got today Jamie Free which is Jamie leaving the city, leaving Kingsland and going back into the Riverland. So that's a big old one. I think it's uh, Jamie's longest chapter. I'll, I'll check that in for you in a second. We have then Cersei 6, which is the faith. Cersei going to the Sept of Baylor. I don't think I need to tell you how ripple effectish that chapter is going to be. And then we finish with the final Ironborn chapter is the Reaver, Victarion 2. So that is big in terms of the direction of the ironborn almost as big as the kingsway itself really uh, if we're looking at that regards definitely big in terms of victarion's personal path and then what's going to happen to westeros and we kind of get our best look at euron probably ever i guess unless we're looking unless we're talking about the forsaken so there's lots to talk about so before we get going just finally thank you of course to all the patrons thank you to everyone downloading and sharing and that we had the kind of double episode day last week and lots of nice comments and I say it every week, don't I? I think you guys know how much I appreciate you by now, but you're all just wonderful, aren't you? And like I say, definitely get in touch. Let me know what you're reading, what your love is, what really inspires you. It just gets that special feeling. I, you can tell I'm very 
Studio Ghibli'd up this morning. It's that sun, I tell you. Okay, okay. I'll stop delaying. Let's get on with our three chapters today. I don't want to make a three chapter episode somehow longer than the four. So let's start off with Jamie Free. And this really kicks off a run of high Jamie frequency now as we move towards the end of this book. His next three chapter gaps are, we have a two chapter gap, and then another two, and a four with a five to finish. He's just got that little bit of a gap there at the end. And we're following on from a Sam again. This is the same as Jamie's second chapter. I can't really see any connection there, if I'm being honest, but there we go. Perhaps there is such a thing as coincidence in A Song of Ice and Fire after all. Interestingly, that will be reversed for the final two chapters for those two POVs. Jamie will come first, and then Sam will finish off the book. So there we go. And I could have sworn, to be honest, we would have had more than two Jamie chapters so far, but that, I guess that's the benefit of appearing in so many Cersei chapters. We have that effect with Sans as well in Storm. And a little bit with Sam and John at the end of Storm as well. But the point really is, we're getting even more Jamie as we go forward here. We're really turning into a Jamie-focused book. And I was right, this is the longest Jamie chapter in, not just in Feast actually, in the whole series. This is the biggest Jamie chapter, so we're really focusing on him today. So like I said, this is Jamie leaving the city. That's the big part of this chapter. We're going to get a bit before, we're going to get a bit of him actually arriving in the Riverlands. But the main crux of it is, he leaves. And not just him, but more high profiles as well so that's a continuation of what we said beforehand this is another specific Cersei decision we see today that weakens the sea it allows the sparrows in maybe more people coming across the sea who knows and I can see why Jamie is going out there because absolutely you can't rely on the phrase but I would say secure the city first and even if you are arguing you probably want Jamie on hand for that but there we go Cersei makes that decision today and she'll just have to live with the consequences won't she so let's kick off with the text, and it's not a good start to the chapter with Cersei comparing Jamie to Robert, a man that Jamie is always considered an idiot. He stole his love, who he enjoyed cheating with behind his back. We're going to get a lot of Jamie thoughts on Robert actually going forward, not just today, but in his next chapter as well. And he knows Cersei's feelings on Robert as well. He knows hey, she did not like this guy, so if she's making comparisons between me and him, it's not exactly a compliment, is it? Is that who he is to her now? Is he the old news that just can't excite Cersei anymore? Is he the one that she wants to be rid of like Robert was once? And so he was the, the big bad in her life. She would run off to Jamie. They would have fun. He'd be her release. Now he's worried. He's switched roles and she's running off to Osmond and Moonboy, etc, etc. And he's become the Robert. And when you combine that with her plucking silver hairs from his beard, again, not the best mindset to start a chapter off. But this entire meeting with Cersei is so difficult. It's his final meeting. And he tried so hard to get back to her through the beginning of the series and it all just went wrong. That was his 100% his motivation. He really didn't care about anything else. He was just getting back to Cersei. And he went through literal hell to get there. Lost his hand. Lost, well, was <laughs> a prisoner for so long, etc, etc. All these different horrors. And he got there and it wasn't what it was supposed to be. It all went wrong. And quick as that, he's leaving her again. It seems to him probably he's only been there two minutes. And this great reunion of the love of his life has just turned into petty squabbles and then not liking each other. And it doesn't help that that Moonboy thing is coming up. Cersei is talking a lot about Osmond in the opening pages here, so we know how terrible it is for him because he knows that he wants her deep down, but he also doesn't because she's so awful and she's getting worse. But he does really, but he's trying to be better, so he shouldn't. So it's all very emotionally tiring, isn't it? It just goes round and round. And mix that in with this sense of failure and being dismissed from a role that he's wholeheartedly thrown himself into well he's not being dismissed to be fair but he is being 
pushed to the side, isn't he? This isn't what the Lord Commander is supposed to be doing. So he's not going to be taking any, any joy in it at all. So again, poor mindset. Just nothing going right at the beginning here. He's losing his duty, technically. He's losing Cersei. He's losing Tommen, for whatever that's worth. Don't know how much stock we put in that, but he certainly seems fonder of Tommen than he was of Joffrey. So that's something. Not difficult, but that is something. And also he's losing Cersei to other men specifically. That's the hard one. That's the bit that really bites him. That he's going to go, what's going to be going on while he's not here? Because last time he found it difficult enough being away from her when he was convinced she would be being faithful. Now he's got to go away wondering what's going on back in the bedchamber, isn't he? So that's all one facet of his leaving this difficult. But on the other side of it, the Cersei's come to know in these last few chapters and in this book, he's now leaving the city and Tommen in her hands and he knows what that means because we've had these comparisons to the mad king with her isn't he and he's not very comfortable with that fact i don't think it's a coincidence that the tower of the hand is in the background when he looks at it because that is a reminder isn't it of what she's capable of of those areas comparisons he's looking at her he's looking at the tower he's looking at the tower he's looking at her things come together in his mind his first quote of the day why name davin your warden of the west if you have no faith in him that's a legit question jamie well done and Cersei doesn't have an answer. She just goes straight to questioning Jamie's bravery and masculinity because that is always a favourite attack point of her. So Jamie, he learns it's back to Harrenhal for him, an inc incredibly important place, now twice over, as discussed back in Storm, and it's because another of Cersei's ploys isn't working. This time it's the one about sending Wyman Mandley's son, Willis, back, to, back up to the north because basically none of her ploys ever work. <laughs> so there's always some kind of spanner in the works and she's sending Jamie to sort this one out for her. In his absence, she wants to promote Osmond Kettleblack to command the King's Guard. Hmm, bit of a dodgy decision there, isn't it? He's the newest member, he's possibly the youngest, save for Loris. We definitely know Loris is the youngest. Not sure about Balon Swan and the others, but Osmond's definitely not on the older scale. He's one of the younger ones. So, just leadership 101 being failed by Cersei here. Awful management. Of course, this is a bad decision for your other Kingsguard in terms of keeping them happy, in terms of everyone else, because again, these Cataplacks are rather new and they're just kind of jumping up this ladder too quickly. It's just not good for any sort of team management. But she relies on this sort of person now. She has no real power base because she won't play the polite game with people that she doesn't like, which is everyone. She doesn't like anyone. So she ends up having to give these honours to the Cataplacks because... She has so few allies, she has to kind of keep the one she does have sweet, in a way. And she thinks it's going to improve her own control over the court, which I think, you know, <laughs> it probably doesn't. Even older members like Merrin or Boris would at least send an outward message of structure and trust in their members. I'm not saying they would make good temporary commanders, but at least it sends the right message. Balon Swan would obviously be an excellent choice, but she's already sent him down to Dawn. And Loras is a clear favourite and elected by this actual Lord Commander, there's Jamie. Now, okay, that flies in the face of my argument in that Loris is also fairly new. He's also the youngest, but one, it keeps the Tyrells very, very happy. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? And he has actually proven himself to be worthy. And he has the backing of the actual Lord Commander. So this is all a lot more uh, legit and on the table. You can't argue with that one as much. If it's Osmond and it's Cersei making the decision, which it obviously is, then you start having people whisper, don't you? Unfortunately, as we've said time and time again, Cersei stops thinking as soon as you get past the first syllable of Loris's surname. It doesn't matter how good young Loris is, he's a Tyrell and therefore a supposed enemy of Cersei, and that is all that matters. I'm wondering if this is actually a violation of Jaime's power. You would think so, wouldn't it? 
Again, there's no push and pull with the officers in place to support her. She just erodes the rock that she stands on by this uh, weakening of office that we've spoken about so many times by just handing it out to the wrong person again and again. And when Jamie does counter this option, Cersei only responds with her personal feelings on Loras. Not his ability, not how good of an idea it would be, just that she doesn't like him. And again, that comes before implying that Jamie is less of a man these days. So quite a theme we're getting already with these insults. When Jamie calls out that Osmond obviously wants Cersei sexually, it's clearly a bit too close to the truth for her. She lashes out instead. She goes on the defensive. He thinks about the times of the past where they would have loved each other instead of fought. Cersei might even be thinking the same, but what's clear is those days are gone and the pair say their possible final goodbye. Definitely the final goodbye for the series. And, well, this quote supports it a bit. He wanted to rip her gown off and turn her blows to kisses. He'd done it before, back when he had two good hands. So I think we can focus on the end of that then. Back when he had two good hands. So he's already admitting that that was a different time because he doesn't have two hands anymore. That's just gone. And so is that relationship with Cersei. But also, if we want to buy into some theory crafting, the line sticks out to me as a possible future for their reunion, specifically this turning blows to kisses, because it reminds me very much of Tyrion's killing of Shay and beating away the warm hands. It just seems to have that same structure to it to me. Just in these first two pages, Jamie has his Lancel Osman Moonboy mantra repeated four times in two pages. So that's got to be a record, I think. When it finally comes to the end, this is what he focuses on, this possibility that Cersei has ultimately betrayed him in the arena of love and their relationship. Family and politics are second for him, when you get down to it, really. And this is not the end of his obsession over the truth, don't worry, we're going to get some more of that today and his next chapter and onwards. But right here you can see how it ties very heavily into his big decision at the end of this book. So that's it for Jamie and Cersei, they've gone. And now we get some exact numbers on who's going with Jamie and the further weakening of the city thanks to Cersei's command here. Because again, this is all her idea. This isn't Jamie thinking, well, I'll go out and solve the problem for you and uh, this might be a good idea. It's just Cersei moving the pieces around for her emotions, for how she feels about Jamie, for whatever else. And again, weakening of the city. As we mentioned a few chapters ago, 40 nights doesn't sound like a lot until your city is under attack and you realise that 40 is higher than zero. Now, only half of them are Westermen, half of them are Stormlords, so it's not as bad a loss still even then that's just the ones inside the city that jamie leaves with here outside waiting for him there's heavy horse there's archers there's the holy hundred altogether it's nearly another thousand men Cersei's willing to give up remember a couple of chapters ago when we went through how many had been sent out to storm's end and, and other places to dragonstone now there's another thousand going and okay we'll be fair she doesn't have the info on uh, young and old Griff coming up soon and we don't know if Daenerys is arriving but she does know about the sparrows and she should be smart enough to realize that she needs to protect her own power base first and foremost and really solidify that current grip because it isn't as strong as it should be but Cersei is of the opinion that everyone will just obey when it comes down to it because they should not really giving proper due to the influence that an army can have of keeping your city together she just thinks everyone will always obey her doesn't matter if she has an army or not Unfortunately, that's not the case. The name Red Ronnet sticks out to us here, thanks to Brienne chapters. We know that's going to be important at some point. Surely, we're not having him pointed out to us for Jamie not to have an interaction. And don't worry, we're not failed on that count, but it'll come later. And speaking of names, it's not just pure numbers and pure soldiers, but big commanders are going here. Names we know. Ilan Payne, he's off, and he might not be 
much in terms of being a man anymore. We'll discuss that in a little bit. But he does have value in a battle. Adam Marbrand, even more so. He's a huge loss for City. Even if he is of high value in the field rather than King's Landing, still, battle comes, you would really like to have Adam Marbrand there. And in fairness, again, Cersei didn't send these two out specifically, but she also didn't resist when Jamie asked when she probably should have. And why? Partly because she doesn't think, of course, but also because Jamie astutely recognises it's because she doesn't want any benefits that can't be directly attributed to her. Here's a quote. Cersei had not put up a fight. Most likely she's pleased to rid herself of them. Sir Adam was a boyhood friend of Jamie's, and the silent headsman had belonged to their father, if he belonged to anyone. So it's that out of the old attitude again. Cersei is almost dead against using any of the established regime that came before her because there's a risk she might not get credit. Apparently, it's better to get 100% credit and lose than share and win. It's that real king slash queen of the ashes mentality that's so devastating for her. As we head off here, I really like the naming of the horses, the honour and glory, these two horses of Jamie's, And I think it's very representative of the two halves of Jamie's life. The glory of before and of his youth, when he's riding in the tourneys with his golden armour, and the honour, well, that's what he's trying to instil now. That's his kind of second half since he's come home. And it's more than that, really. I mean, that's me guessing, but it's more than that. It's just the pure allowing of the naming, because Jamie has this thing where he's been so affected by death because of what's happened in his youth, that even it extends out to his horses. He didn't want to name them because you name them, you get more attached, they die, not good. And some of that is being a soldier, but I think it also relates strongly to Jamie's personal experiences of death and how he's still suffering from that a lot. That's really marked his soul. But now, he's willing to take that on again. He's a little bit more alive, I think. Although I will say, side note here, how many horses could Jamie have actually lost in battle? This sounds like an old idiosyncrasy. He says that it's formed in his youth rather than during the War of the Five Kings, that's too recent. He says it's been long years. And long years ago, well, Jamie only ever rode against the Kingswood Brotherhood and then the Greyjoy Rebellion. So I'm wondering, did he lose two horses? Maybe more, I guess. I'm not sure. Another quote just as we head out of the city here. They like the smell of roses, but have no love for lions, Jamie observed. My sister would be wise to take note of that. So Jamie again is being astute by taking note of the general feeling of the small folk in the city and who they like. Unfortunately, his hope that Cersei will click as well will go unfulfilled with some dire consequences in her walk of shame. Again, Cersei doesn't think she should have to put in any work on that end. The small folk should just love her inherently because of who she is. That's a real key philosophy of Cersei and why she kind of sucks as a ruler. Well, not kind of, she just does. Another quote. Now my sweet sister sends me to finish the work that Amory Lorch and Gregor Game began. Oh, okay, that's true, but more to the point, Tywin began. But I get your point, Jamie. So Jamie, he is bitter about certain aspects of his mission, sure. But like Adam Marbrand, he takes a joy in being back out in the saddle, back out in the field, out with an army around him. He is a soldier at heart. He always has been, as we'll discuss later in terms of his training with Ilan. He's effectively just had a big breakup with Cersei, the big breakup of his life. So this is how he comes back to himself. He's the old athlete again, immersing himself back in the game and his natural state. Only this time, he's combining it with his new hobby of being a leader. And we see it right from the off in terms of having Marbrand protect his flanks and having learned all these lessons that Rob taught him in the Riverlands and the early war of keeping the column tight, etc, etc. We saw his leadership born back in White Sword Tower, but now he's completing the combination of, of who he can be. He's had the skill days of swordplay, now he's getting his leadership badge as well. George even labels him content. He's even sharing blackberries with his squires. 
you love to see that kind of thing with Jamie. We really have been treated to some nice moments for people lately where they don't normally get them. The sun was warm on his back and the wind riffled through his hair like a woman's fingers. Now normally, when Jamie has this kind of thing, the woman's fingers are Cersei's fingers. So I just love that he's already finding a replacement for her in, in the great outdoors. Just like me and my dog walked this morning, Jamie. Me and you. Well, I'm not replacing anyone, to be fair. <laughs> Lady Buffy's just ill. I'm not replacing her. But I like being outdoors as well. So now our thoughts turn to Ill and Bane, which is a really interesting part of this chapter because it's been a while, wasn't it? I love how much it says about King's Landing and the crown that while Illin is obviously a great headsman, he's obviously not suited to run the dungeons, but they have him do so anyway purely because of tradition. That's very King's Landing-ish, isn't it? Well, it's always been done that way, so suitably to be damned, let's put him in there. Now, that's just the quick initial thought that comes to head, but we really get a good look at Illin Payne and what has become of him in this quote, and I'll read the whole thing to you. It's a long one, but I'll read it to you. The chambers stank of rotted food, and the rushes were crawling with vermin. As Jamie entered, he almost trod upon a rat. Payne's greatsword rested on a trestle table, beside a whetstone and a greasy oilcloth. The steel was immaculate, the edge glimmering blue in the pale light, but elsewhere piles of sword clothing were strewn about the floors, and the bits of mail and armour scattered here and there were red with rust. Jamie could not count the broken wine jars. The man cares for naught but killing, he thought as Sir Ilan emerged from a bedchamber that reeked of overflowing chamber pot. I truly love the fact that we find out about Ilan's lifestyle and how shallow slash awful slash empty it is after all this time of him being out of the spotlight. It's a wonderful twist on the revenge of Ilan's part in killing Ned. We're supposed to want bad things to happen to this man. He's He's been a fixture on an eye's list since the start, but we find out it's already happened. He doesn't need vengeance visited upon him. His existence is terrible enough and pretty much the polar opposite of Eddard Stark, the family man. Ilan's life is completely empty, as empty as it could be. He doesn't care about himself or anything enough to even clean rats out of his room. That's how little he cares. All he has, as Jamie notes, is the act which we despise him for in the form of his clean sword. That is literally it. He lives for death. I do love that connection with Ned as well. It's great. We open the series on the scene of Ned having to behead someone. He took no joy in it. It was his duty. Ilan Payne did the same thing, but gets labelled as evil because he took the head of someone we like. And that's an interesting conversation because Ilan, as far as we know, wasn't pushing for Ned's fall particularly, wasn't involved in the whole the coup thing. He was just told to do his job and did it. Best we can surmise, he doesn't care who gets put in front of him. So we can ask whether he truly deserves the scorn as Cersei does or Joffrey did. And maybe I'm misremembering. Feel free to correct. But either way, it's a brilliant inversion for Ned to hate the duty, whereas to Ilan is the only thing worth caring for. Clothes, food, sanitation, they're all no's for Ilan Payne. Clean sword? Absolutely yes. He is a really fascinating character and I enjoyed discussing him with Lady Gwyn when we spoke about the Winds of Winter prologue over on Radio Westeros. It's such a shame that Lady Gwyn rightly proved he almost definitely won't be the POV for the prologue, but it's great to imagine if he was. I think it's very clever of George to have Ilan fall off the stage for so long before bringing him back at a life-changing moment. He's only appeared in a single scene since the Blackwater, and that is Joffrey's wedding, where he lends his king the sword he was given to replace ice. Ilan is clearly not particularly infused with life. You can compare him quite easily to a Sandok again, perhaps, but riding out with Jamie is damn better than this horrible room. Although Cersei has also lost another official office, which it, which it seems she forgets to fill. You have to wonder where this is all going for Ilan Payne, though. As of Dance, he didn't accompany Jamie to Raventry Hall, and he wasn't there when. Uh, Jamie goes off with Brienne either, so don't know. 
He also hasn't gone with their Edmure Jane bunch, like Lady Gwyn mentioned. So where is he? Is he riding a few days behind one or the other? Or is he doing something else? Very, very interesting. We look forward to find that out. Especially with all these Jamie secrets he's about to gain. Of course, the idea is that he has no way of communicating to them. But if the desire is high enough, I think he could get a few key concepts across, perhaps. Next up, we have dinner at Hayford, with Jamie showing off his new hand for the first time. And again, it's another symbol that this is a new era of his life. Even if Jamie still believes he'll forever be the Kingslayer to everyone no matter what. But there is a lot in the name of Golden Hand, especially with him taking on the new persona of being a guider. He's working the tiller of the land rather than just swinging the sword. This is Jamie trying to steer things in the right direction. And right now, he doesn't see any of that. Instead, he gets a bit shirty about the whole thing. And that's understandable. He says he can't fight with it. Okay. Now, we'll return to talking about Inland Pain in a moment, but before that, we have this quick thought about Varys instead. Here's a quote. It would have been a simple matter for him to arrange to have Tyrex snatched during the confusion, provided he knew beforehand that the mob was like to riot, and Varys knew all, or so he would have us believe. Yet he gave Cersei no warning of that riot, nor did he ride down to the ships to see Marcella off. So, a first Tyrex mention in quite a while, and Jamie susses immediately that Varys might have had a part in it. His detective skills have really improved, I don't think Tyrion even ever got that far in suspecting Varys and Tyrek. And another quote, No good for throttling eunuchs, but heavy enough to smash that slimy smile into a fine red ruin. He wanted to hit someone. Okay, so he doesn't get to indulge here, but again, save it for Red Ronick Connington later on, Jamie. Don't worry, it's coming. And we'll enjoy that one much more. It's so much more deserved for Brienne than just uh, hitting Varys would have been. Okay, so back to Illan this time. Another quote here for you. On the morrow and the morrow. Every day will dance, till I am as good with my left hand as I ever was with the right. So we get all surprised at Ilan's true purpose on this trip, Jamie's secret sparring partner. We spoke a lot about this training and Jamie's need for it when he originally returned to King's Landing, but to reiterate, he desperately needs this for his sense of self. We'll use that athlete analogy again. Fighting is where Jamie has always found his worth. That's why he's important, that's what he offered the world, it's who he is. Having lost that had a huge effect on his sense of self, as we've discussed about a thousand times now. So he has to take any possible avenue to regaining that. If there's a 1% chance he can get that back, okay, yeah, the leadership stuff is cool, I'm becoming a bit smarter, I'm a cool detective, but I'd really, really like to have my sword back. So this whole scene is really a, a huge emotional leap of faith, because we can look at it as it's better to retain the possibility he could retrain, rather than try and fail and know for certain. There's that temptation to just, well, I can probably regain it and one day I'll do it, but don't actually use up that opportunity because what if you do and you find out you can't, then there's no avenues left open to you. So like with the horses, Jamie is prepared to be emotionally vulnerable again. He's taking that option that this could all go bad, but I'm going to risk it anyway. And in fairness, it's not just for his sense of self. He kind of needs this for his command. He's not exactly got a stable rule on the Kingsguard. A lot of that is to do with Cersei, true. But he, he can't pull off this secret forever. We've, again, we've discussed this before. People will find out he's not what he was. And then the respect starts waning. At least that's how Jamie sees it. That's not true for all cases, but it will be for some. Now, in terms of this fight, this spa that they have, this duel. I think this probably has been mentioned elsewhere. I'm not aware if it has. Again, please correct me. But it seems to me... There's a few connections back to the prologue and Waymar Royce's duel with the other. Bear with me here. What started that thought off for me was Jamie using the word dance in that quote. Because recall, famously, Waymar told the other, 
dance with me then. If we love that line, that line sticks on our memory and obviously jumped out to me this time. So we can make some loose comparisons to Ilan and the others in being silent, or at least the others don't speak a human language, and also a representative of death. Ilan laughs at Jamie in the same way that the other does to Waymar after he's defeated. Jamie and Ilan fight beneath a horned moon. Waymar and the other dueled in moonlight. Ilan wielded a sword named Ice for many years. Well, what do you think the others are carrying? So take that as you will. There are a lot of in-depth thoughts about Jamie ending up in the North and interacting with the Night's Watch or the others at some point, and certainly I lean that way. But thanks to that dance word, I really do think this duel makes for a good comparison or a good link to that world. So you tell me, what do you think that means? So as the chapter moves on, Jamie re-enters the war-torn Riverlands and there's some great structuring from George that he's doing so essentially at the same time as Brienne, even if they are still geographically far apart for the moment. There's a nice mirror between the both of them, with Brienne dealing with the small folk side of things, whereas Jamie he does with the noble, as they both continue their quests of putting things right. Like we said with Brienne earlier in the book, this is an emotionally heavy move for Jamie that we could have forgiven him for just passing on. He lost a hand here, he lost a battle, he spent months inside a cell in this realm, and now he's going right back in. I love that almost immediately we seem to like cross a border basically, and the walls established straight away we have to have that the wolves are still around the reading people left right and center and just like hearing about those wolves as you know but potentially this is of very heavy importance for certain members of this very party or at least for one of jamie's creation anyway if my and the pair of radio west horses prologue predictions are correct and straight away we also find some remnants of the war in the burned hall of the woads when jamie locates outlaws or are they broken men you could say either way Jamie takes action and decides that he likes the feeling. One of them wore the ruins of a crimson cloak, but Jamie hanged him with the rest. It felt good. This was justice. Make a habit of it, Lannister, and one day men might call you Golden Hand after all. Now we're even getting Stannis vibes from Jamie, who believes he can come and do what is right, and he might even enjoy it. It's a shame that Harrenhal is on the horizon to dampen everyone's spirits here. Well, I do like Jamie, considering asking people about a maid of three and ten, or even Brienne herself. She is on his mind even before he thinks of Cersei on this trip, so what does that tell you? Yes, it is time for Harrenhal. One last time for Harrenhal. It's been a huge staple in our story, both for Aya and Jamie and Brienne as well on top, as well as historically, obviously, just in Fire and Blood it's mentioned enough, but this will be our last time here. Most of us would expect it to come back into focus in some form or another in Winds or A Dream of Spring. Certainly Winds, if it's got the theme of bad things happening, you'd expect Harrenhal would fit right in there. But for now, this is it. And this is actually the worst condition we ever find it in, which is a pretty low bar to get under. The evils unleashed by Tywin and led by Gregor have just been left to fester in filth and debauchery and evil. They've nothing that they want to fight for or achieve. They've nothing to do except just be bad in general. When one of your leaders, your leaders, is named Shipmouth, I think the message is pretty clear. Welcome to the legacy of Tywin Lannister. Harrenhal has always been lauded as a representation of disaster and defeat and darkness. So it's fitting that the last we see of it is inhabitants that don't fit that mould exactly, with Jaime doing his best to wipe it clean. It's interesting, we learn that Poliver was named Castellan when Gregor left. So even when not there, Aya and Sandor are affecting the fate of Harrenhal with their killing of Poliver. That's good to connect those two to this scene when we also re-meet Rafford, who's going to have his own dealings with Aya in the Mercy chapter of Winds. It's also some good structuring that Jamie is asking questions about Sandor at the same time that Brienne is, with neither of them getting quite the whole picture. 
Rotted, sir. And eh. Father, Jamie thought. Your dogs have both gone mad. Yes, we thought Harrenhal was bad before. The cannibalism theme that rises through feast and definitely in dance gets a lot more focus here as we discover that Vargo Hope was not only slowly dismembered piece by piece, but made to eat himself as he went. Now, Vargo Hope is an absolute monster who deserves the very worst. But still, this is one of those moments that George makes us question how far we want our vengeance to actually go. And I'm willing to say this is a bit too far. Much worse is that poor Willis Mandeli unknowingly, you'd think, was also made to eat Vargo as well. So we have a northerner being tricked into eating human meat, as we've already suspected with both Bran and Aya now. And there's certainly lots that links thematically to the fray pies there as well, so perhaps Willis was aware or at least told after. Though there's no connection between Willis and Vargo, or Vargo and the Freys, not really strongly anyway, we could see this as one of the many reasons that Wyman Mandeli wanted to go such a route with his baking. Regardless, it's obvious that true evil has settled in this place. The breaking of taboos is not confined to the twins alone. Real, ancient, like, you know, inherent taboos. Such awfulness is enough to keep Jamie from indulging in any petty revenge of his own. Instead, he opts for order. He opts for that right choice again. He's introduced to the remnants of Harrenhal's people and its captives also. We have this heartbreaking scene, not just of Pyre. Is it Pyre? Pyre. I can't remember. I think we went Pyre. Of Pyre rushing at Jamie, that hero that she has needed for so long and she just completely breaks down but also in how much she's changed both physically and emotionally since we saw her last it's one of those just deeply unsettling moments that really lies heavy in your gut when you read it and jamie sees the comparison easily thankfully he also agrees to take an away not just from this evil place but also from sir boniface's stupidity as well because sir boniface is not all that nice about pretty pie willis manley doesn't act so differently when he's told he's going home he also got its collapses. <laughs> this place is so horrible that that kind of news is even better than you can dream of. And Jamie mentions that there's other highborn northern hostages here, but I'm not sure we ever find out who those actually are. But let's talk about Sir Boniface some more. Here's a quote. Sir Boniface himself had been a promising knight in his youth, but something had happened to him, a defeat or a disgrace or a near brush with death, and afterward he had decided that jousting was an empty vanity and put away his lance for good and all. So this very interestingly, and I, I'm sure this has been pointed out by others as well, lines up very closely with Barristan Selmy's dance story about Rayella, the queen, loving a lowborn knight who was a tourney champion but decided to retire when he couldn't win her. Perhaps that's coincidence, perhaps it's not. A few weeks ago, this is why I mention it, a few weeks ago I was lamenting that we barely ever get to know Rayella the person, so I hope this is true just so that we can flesh her out a bit. It's nice to get the info from Barristan, but just imagine if we get some real insight to Rayella from Bonifer. I don't think we'll ever get that opportunity, but still it would be nice, wouldn't it? Perhaps he could even come into contact with Daenerys and tell her about her mother. She, she's barely been told anything. Really, she's not been told a word about her mother, to be honest, in the series. So we all have to dream. But also, this concerns the future of Harrenhal, because Bonifer and his Holy Hundred, that aren't quite a hundred, are left in charge. So can they break the curse? Maybe each of those hearths, those hundred hearths, need to be manned, although again, they're still a few short. They probably can't turn Harrenhal around, which is a shame, because we'd like to see this place change, and they seem to be what the area needs, but I think we all assume Harrenhal is going to have, have more importance yet, and probably not just for Sir Boniface. Besides, as Jamie notes, they might not be made of the right stuff for this current wartime, and that's only going to get worse as we get into winter, isn't it? The real cherry on top is Boniface is entirely too confident about not going the same way as previous owners because of his faith. And that kind of talk 
puts you on George's kill list straight away. Next quote here. The stranger might have made off with the goat before Jamie could get to him, but Vat Zolo was still out there, with Shagwell and Rorge, Faithful, Urswick and the rest. Sorry Jamie, but Brienne is way ahead of you on the vengeance justice scale. Shagwell and his group she's already dealt with. Rorge will come later. But as we've mentioned before, Urswick is likely still around, as is Zolo, supposedly. So it makes sense to reference the literal man who took Jamie's hand while we've been discussing Ill and Payne, who played the same, much more final role for Ned. Remember, Urswick was supposedly making for Old Town, maybe with Zolo in tow. That's fairly brave of them to head southwest across Restoros and the Reach, and I wonder how far they might have gotten. Perhaps they are currently in that fairly undetailed part of the map, just south of the Riverlands. They might have tried to travel on the Manda. You'd think they'd want to steer clear of High Garden, but who knows? It would be some karmic justice if they did actually arrive in Old Town the same time as Euron. Or, recall again, that Greenbeard and the Man Huntsman were sent to the Manda to gain food, so perhaps they run into these mummers on the way back. And final note on Bonifer here, just before we leave this scene. According to Bonifer, any man might atone and be forgiven. Weirdly, he doesn't seem to give Pyre that same option. Hmm. wonder why that is, Bonifer. The chapter ends with Jamie searching out a place of personal importance. There's a lot of parts of Harrenhal that fit that bill for Jamie, but the one he chooses is the most recent one, and the one he shares with Brienne the most, where he made the big decision and the hero act that really marked a change in his life. I'm talking, of course, about the bear pit, and he even feels some pity for the poor bear, because that's just a sign of Jamie's growth. But there, he also finds another man that figures into Brienne's past, Red Ronnet Connington. We've spoke about Hyle Hunt's change and whether Brienne should accept that. She would have no such dilemma with Ronnet, who appears to be every part of the moron that Brienne remembers. And here we get some quick family history on the Conningtons, and John specifically, which is obviously a very important link for the next book. But it's Ronnet's continual insulting of Brienne's looks, which Jamie has done more than his fair share of, we should mention, and the calling of her a freak that gets Jamie into action. Once again, he moves to protect Brienne, and he finally finds a use for his new hand, the marker of the new Jamie. Jamie's golden hand cracked him across the mouth so hard the other knight went stumbling down the steps. His lantern fell and smashed, and the oil spread out, burning. You are speaking of a highborn lady, sir. Call her by her name. Call her Brienne. Connington edged away from the spreading flames on his hands and knees. Brienne, if it please my lord. He spat a glob of blood at Jamie's foot. Brienne the beauty. Names are already important for a man who's lived with one singular label for nearly two decades now. And Jamie probably feels some guilt over his own bullying of Brienne here, but the act itself is one of chivalry. He is protecting Brienne's name, as she will argue for his. The connection could not be clearer. We've had plenty of hints along the way about these two, but this has to be the strongest, and it makes you feel genuinely glad for the man, as does the chapter as a whole. He gets away, finally. He is away from Cersei, he's away from the city. We have to celebrate. So Ilan isn't the only one with improved circumstances. Yes, Jimmy might be missing a hand, and he might be back in this whole world place, and the, the realm that things didn't go so well for him, but he's also in his natural setting, and away from Cersei, which is just critical. There's a reason this chapter ends with him honouring Brienne with her name, because she is finally his focus. But we, on the other hand, still have to talk about Cersei, unfortunately. So let's move on to our second chapter of the day. It is Cersei 6. So we have an intriguing question to ask right from the off here. Is this the most important Cersei chapter in the book? In terms of repercussions, it's pretty hard to suggest another answer, at least not until the very end. Cersei has made a whole big bunch of mistakes, the effects of which differ in size and severity. But here we have the ultimate. This is the Cersei mistake, the one that will physically strip her of her power, her position, her city, even her son and her freedom for a time. 
we can have a long debate about what Cersei might get up to in Winds and Dream, but for the published series, this is it. This is where Cersei loses. And of course, because of Cersei, this is achieved by her very own hand, and while she believes, she's winning. This interaction with the High Sparrow is an absolute clinic in manipulation and outwitting someone. The Sparrow plays it absolutely perfectly so as to make Cersei suggest her own demise and again believes that she's actually winning because of the other threats he makes. She comes out of the meeting literally ticking off the ways she's won, not realising she has lost on every count. The court of the Iron Throne, the House Tyrell and King's Landing as a whole changes because of Cersei's complete ineptitude and stupidity, which okay, we could have said about any chapter, but this is really where it changes. This is where what we've been discussing about her qualities and lack thereof, where it all pays off big. The start of a quote. Make way, clear the street, make way for her grace the queen. So this is interesting to start off because this is a clear comparison for Cersei's walk of shame later on. Now she comes in a litter with all the trimmings, but soon that'll be all taken away and only Cersei herself will be left to face the crowd. It's fitting for a chapter of majorly important progressions that Cersei begins still being obsessed with her Marjorie plan. She is so zoned in on trying to win this one battle, she's essentially uncaring about the rest of the world. This is it, she's got a one-track mind. Everything will be great as long as Marjorie is defeated, that's all that matters. Cersei is also some way past subtlety as she probes Taylor Merriweather for other people to possibly frame with Marjorie. It's very obvious she's looking for targets, and then she ends up just asking straight questions about Marjorie's virginity. Clearly, she's getting impatient, a factor that will become important when we get to her conversations with the High Sparrow. Another quote from Cersei herself. The butterfly knight who lost his arm on the Blackwater? What good is half a man? So Cersei really does have something against the disabled or those who are differently formed. And I wonder if it started with Tyrion or if it's just an opinion she's always had, but either way, it's really starting to come to the surface. This search for a patsy winds up with Loras, an idea that tells us more about Cersei than Marjorie, I think. But in this case, it's Tainy Merriweather, perfectly hamming it up with her wicked thought face. Yes, subtlety is really not high in this litter, unfortunately. We must note again, Cersei suggests Taina bring her son to court and is once again given an excuse. Hmm, why wouldn't Taina want to bring her son to enjoy the benefits of being Cersei's friend, I wonder? Is it because she doesn't have that much faith in Cersei being around all that much longer? Hmm, hmm possibly. In the same passage, Cersei reflects that Joffrey was lonely as a child. She'd never dare say her beloved son had any thoughts, but we certainly discuss this loneliness as a percentage, however small, in the monster he grew up to be, especially in terms of trying to impress Robert. Classically, Cersei only considers this whole boyhood friend thing with Tommen, not as a cure for loneliness exactly, but just as another way to get him away from Marjorie. Like, it's just, that's all that matters, it doesn't really matter in any other way. The pair begin discussing their eventual destination and who Cersei will meet there. This new, nameless sparrow who isn't even coming from the high ranks. We'll find out a lot more soon enough, but even at this early stage, Cersei considers having him killed if he is too troublesome. Because if you've done it once, you might as well do it again, I suppose. Again, it's very Cersei-like to go in there all confidence when she's about to make huge concessions and losses. We next find the reason for Cersei's outing. This new High Sparrow has refused to come and bless King Tommen at the Red Keep. That's of critical importance, as anyone who's read Fire and Blood will tell you. There will be plenty in the realm who won't consider Tom and King until he's officially anointed. And considering how unstable his current rule is, that's of high importance, isn't it? For a High Septon to refuse to come, not good optics about your power in the city for either Tommen or Cersei. And how does this first get shown to us? It's the tides of the sparrows filling the streets to the point you can't actually move anymore. Cersei curses the High Sparrow for allowing such. This is his fault. He had better answer for it. 
She does not conceive the fact that these people are only in the city because of her father's brutality in war, or that she had the opportunity to deal with them just a few chapters ago. But they weren't her problem, right? Hmm. The second issue is that Cersei has stopped payments to the faith, so we instantly understand why any high septon might refuse to come to the Red Keep and do the anointing, even though Cersei is raging about that before bringing up this key piece of information. So this is two different establishments she has stopped payment to now, in favour of building these ships because she refuses to rely on a fleet aligned with the Tyrells. She is dealing in hard lines. There's wriggle room, but she refuses to see it. For rereaders, it's all the funnier knowing what happens with these ships later. Let's do some ship names now. We have them here. Queen Marjorie, Golden Rose, Lord Renly, Lady Olenna, and Princess Marcella. Yes, Tommen's five named ships, and here I call bullshit. There's no way you say to Tommy you can name five ships and he doesn't name one of them after a cat. Nope. Sorry, George, you got that one wrong. But our hearts do melt a little bit when you see he's named one for his sister. Until you find out she was a last-minute replacement for HMS Moonboy. I do think these names are one of the biggest signs of Tyrell Claws in Tommen. Queen Marjorie? That makes sense. Maybe even Golden Rose. I can see Tommen suggesting those as names. But Lord Renly and Lady Elena? Okay not so convinced. Maybe Elena spent some time with him when she was in the city, but we didn't see it, and we don't know of any big relationship between Tommen and Renly. He believes Renly to be his uncle, of course, but they never seem close. If he was naming uncles, he's probably saying Tyrion first, so this is probably the Tyrells just suggesting that he should be more of a fan of that particular uncle and uh, of Lady Elena. Now to connect it to Jamie's chapter that we just discussed, letting go of Adam Marbrand also creates another hole to fill in this sinking ship in terms of office. We now need a new commander of the City Watch. And Cersei chooses Osfried Kettleblack, because it's not really picking something if you don't pick a Kettleblack, is it? And Pycelle was right yet again here, I know. Weird to say, but we keep saying it. This is a bad idea all round. That was too quick for promotion for Osfried, and she's putting all her eggs in this one basket in terms of one family. And it's a family not reliable enough for such an office. Especially Osfried, he's like the third brother that no one cares about. It almost feels repetitive to comment on such a move, because it is always the same thing. Cersei wants her own people in office, never thinking about how suitable they might be. There's a case in point of this quote on Pycelle, objecting to a Dornish master at arms because of insulted Tyrells. Why do you think I'm doing it? She had asked him scornfully. If such things are to matter to her so much, they should be happy coincidences when you hire someone. They should not be the overall objective. Another quote. Hearing about them was one thing, and seeing them another. Perhaps that is because Cersei is so adverse to listening instead of just hearing. When she had saw what they had done to Baelor the Beloved, the Queen had cause to rue her soft heart. So that's quite a comical line about Cersei genuinely thinking she has a soft heart. Hmm. Don't know what your definition of soft heart is, Cersei. When we come to Baelor, we find the literal manifestation of the title of the book. There is a crow here, enjoying the feast given to him by war. I don't think it's coincidence we find this in the same spot that Eddard was murdered. Almost as if the fates are saying this is the direct result of that crime. This is the world they have created. And it's actually... A pretty great move by the faith. It's a loud statement decrying the war and how it's affected the humble. Bear in mind, this huge pile isn't even a small folk, it's just members of the faith, this big pile of bones. So this is a great way to make the crown answer for its war. Cersei, logically, tries to blame the whole thing on Stannis' law or the Normans old gods. That would make sense, and it would probably work on a general crowd. But her attempt to rouse the people for vengeance here, because that is what she would want, falls laughably flat when the Faith only asked the Crown to do exactly what it's supposed to do. A great passive-aggressive argument there, allowing them to accuse Tom and Slash Cersei failing in their duty and being no true rulers. And that's pretty good as a rallying point for the city. So Cersei rallying? Zero. Sparrow's rallying? 
1-0. Cersei is at least smart enough to realise the actual situation they're in and stop Meryn from drawing a sword because it's likely to get them killed. The bread riots are probably fresh in her mind. It's a shame she doesn't retain that sense a bit later on when she agrees to the rearming. If it's this dangerous just as a general crowd because of their sheer numbers, imagine all of them having sword and axes. Just a few that bar her way are problem enough. The refusal to obey the crown, the sticking to their own rules about the King's Guard or visiting the Red Keep or challenging Cersei herself, it's all a defiance of power that really must make people ask how complete the Iron Throne's rule is. Because of Cersei's mismanagement, this is a door they can now squeeze through. And it's interesting, the man who a red star on his surcoat doesn't know Reynard or Torbert, Cersei's go-to sycophants in the, in the faith. So that goes to show the massive influx of sparrows and holy men and how this must have changed the inner dynamic of the sept, especially for those at the comfy top. That idea becomes even more prominent when Cersei enters and finds her friend Reynard reduced to scrubbing on his knees. So quite the management restructure has been going on here. And again, it's comeuppance. This is what Tywin has left for his daughter. Enter the High Sparrow himself now, an infamous character who's going to have a huge effect on Cersei and the city and who we expect will do a lot more things before his time is done. We'll see in a moment how brilliant his political mind is, but Cersei can't even guess about that yet because she's too worried about the fact he has bare feet. Patched robes. He's just a normal guy. He's even sold their bloody crown to feed his people. How in the world is she supposed to deal with someone who obviously doesn't value the same things she does? This is completely out of her wheelhouse. What was it Varys said about truly just men? Hmm. Do you know who I am? Classic Cersei sentiment. She is a lioness and all the rest are lesser beasts. She doesn't even realise how she's already giving up the upper edge in the meeting by reacting this way because he obviously keeps calm to the point and keeps coming up right and correct over and over. It's actually pretty funny Cersei considers such people-focused efforts insane. She just can't get her head around why he... What do you mean you fed your people? Take care of yourself first. Here's another quote here just to, to give us the idea of this management restructuring. Septon Lucian had been nine votes from elevation when those doors had given way and the sparrows came pouring into the great sept with their leader on their shoulders and their axes in their hands. So again, big hint here, Cersei. Look what they do when they have numbers and, and weapons. You'd really be paying attention. But again, that restructuring, it's newbies versus the old. There was a class system within the faith, just as in our world, and the lowers swelled and swelled thanks to the war in the Riverlands. So self-serving feast again, isn't it? We can all take some joy in Cersei finally being forced to kneel and to stay there while they talk. We know how much it bothers her. And again, the High Sparrow is winning the ballroom battle of keeping her off kilter. I always think back to the 30 Rock episode of Jack doing that to Liz. Finally, Cersei demands she wants the Sparrows gone. Where? Hmm. Well, she says this. Back where they came from, I would imagine. That's a hilarious line, truly. There's no thought for the wider world. Why they're there, why they can't just go back. She just wants them outside the bubble that is her own headspace, basically. Cersei's dressing down continues when the High Sparrow scolds her with what we mentioned about earlier, with Ned Stark being executed in such a place as this. True enough, Cersei was only partially responsible for that before and didn't actually give the actual order. But just in case we dare feel even a little sympathy for Cersei, George quickly reminds us how she used to go and physically abuse her baby brother. George always keeping us focused there. It's good mirroring, again, that we meet this former walking Septon after having already been introduced to Septon Marinbald. Cersei tries her classic defence of blame everyone else when talk of war comes up, forgetting that it might be easy to bullshit the people of the city, but not people who were actually there on the ground. High Sparrow knows the Lannisters are guilty of atrocities, and he specifically mentions the Hound again. 
And by the way, do all you remember Salt Pans and the Hound being referenced this much? It is getting brought up every single chapter, pretty much. George really, really wanted to press this idea and big up the, the kind of final battle, I guess, of this book. Next quote. Did not Jaehaerys the Conciliator once swear upon the Iron Throne itself that the Crown would always protect and defend the faith? So that's from the High Sparrow, and this is key, because he is establishing that the ancient agreement between these two parties, the Crown and the Faith, has essentially been broken, thereby giving validity to rearming the Sparrows in a moment. The conversation takes on a, a rather circular quality here. As Cersei asks for the Sparrow to anoint Tommen, the Sparrow points out there's all, all that is wrong in the world, etc., before Cersei finally starts offering solutions. She doesn't want Tommen to lose any more men, not when she's given away so many already, so what else is there to do? Well, funnily enough, even while she's asking why she should care about the history that is literally repeating itself, she says this. Your sparrows have clubs and axes. Let them defend themselves. But Magar's laws could be undone. She let that hang there, waiting for the high sparrow to rise to the bait. Amazing. She is the one to actually suggest it. The high sparrow doesn't have to lift a finger. She supplies her own demise. And this is the brilliance of the Sparrow, saying he can't go and do what she wants until this problem is solved, knowing that she can't solve it herself and will thereby give him the power to do whatever he wants. And she believes it's all her idea. She thinks he is rising to the bait. Doesn't realise she's already been hooked and sunk. It is superb. She even thinks he did not disappoint her. And honestly, this chapter just gets funnier and funnier every time you read it until you remember what the consequences are later. At least Cersei realises she might get let off of her debt, which of course the High Sparrow knows to the exact number, that's quite a good mark as well. All the time, never realising the High Sparrow is quite willing to exchange the money for this power he's just been granted. He's already displayed he doesn't care about wealth, but Cersei doesn't stop to think what that power might actually end up doing, why the High Sparrow might give up so much money. That should probably make you stop and think, hang on, hang on. he knows the exact amount, and it's a big amount, but he's willing to let it go, why? No, Cersei doesn't ask that. In fact, she goes the opposite way, convinced it's her best day at the office ever. Even her lord father could have done no better. At her stroke, she had rid King's Landing of the Plague of Sparrows, secured Tommen's blessing, and lessened the crown's debt by close to a million dragons. Her heart was soaring as she allowed the High Septon to escort her back to the Hall of Lamps. So no idea how much she's just been played. She even goes into detail about their history when explaining to Tony Merriweather about the, the faith and their arming. She tells her that they are implacable in their hatred of enemies of the faith, never realising that is exactly what they view her as. And Stannis too, okay, but he's not here, is he? And she also thinks that the Sparrows will just go now. Does she think that they are rearming to leave the sea and go back into the Riverlands? No, no, no. They're staying with you, Cersei. While Cersei and Tana are enjoying their ride back to the Red Keep, we come across Marjorie and her cousins, and the list of men who keep coming up again and again as we go, so George is obviously telling us to take notice. Cersei wants another victory to go along with the Sept, and is now confronted by a happy group of youths full of hopes and lust, everything that Cersei still wants even if she doesn't admit it. So Cersei goes on an extended passage about Marjorie forever leaving the castle. At the beginning, you could argue there might be something there, but then it transforms into Marjorie giving her patronage to workers, talking to citizens, filling up the public opinion, and Cersei condemns her for it. She considers such a thing beneath her, completely ignoring the huge benefits such a PR move could do in terms of optics, and what a powerful force public opinion and small folk actually are. Indeed, Marjorie is the best we ever see at this. Consider the other kings and queens we've seen. Robert, Balon, Stannis, Joffrey, 
all definite no's. Okay, you can give a bit of a pass to Robert because he was good in the tourneys and, you know, he's an easy figure for the small folk to follow. But Balon, Stannis, Joffrey, no, not interacting with the small folk so much. Mance and Rob, they're popular enough, but we really only see them in terms of an army and kind of war territory. Theoretically, Renly would also do well in this regard, but we only ever actually see him form with nobility, not the actual small folk. Marjorie and the Tyrells are on a completely different level, and rather smartly, she wants Tommen involved in such activities. He is still young, he's tough to blame or hate, they can team him with the Tyrells and keep themselves as public heroes, with Cersei the one to blame now that Tyrion's not around. But Cersei is resisting this idea of Tommen being involved. And it's true, Tommen's safety needs to be considered, and this Kingsguard isn't exactly up to scratch. Although Cersei is willing to risk it if there's a chance of getting Marjorie in trouble. The actual advantages, they don't matter to her, and even Tommen can grasp the concept pretty easy, to be honest. I do enjoy Cersei's made-up story in her head of a Tyrion-Sansa Tyrell alliance down at Highgarden. I wish it had happened that way, that sounds like a pretty cool story. Cersei should write some fan fiction. And Marjorie is even daring her enough now to suggest a splitting of responsibilities. She very clearly feels confident in her position. Cersei holds a straight face while claiming she's never seen Marjorie as a rival. She brushes it right off her back. But now we get Cersei's plan of framed incest really coming to formation. We spoke about the irony of that and the level of psychology that goes into Cersei immediately flagging something she's been doing her whole life as the crime to bring down her enemy, so I'll try not to replay that here. And that's even with her own memories giving her the idea and not focusing on like, the possible downside. But don't worry, she won't have to wait too long. And that is, well, that's really secondary, isn't it? Because the whole thing of this chapter is the bigger blunder, the biggest blunder that Cersei ever makes. The High Spire, one introduction. But that's it for Cersei 6 today. We'll move on to, yes, it's our final chapter. We just have the three today. It is back to the Ironborn, not the Iron Islands, but the Ironborn, one last time with Vectarian 2, the Reaver. So we're really starting to rack up the goodbyes now, much earlier than most of the books. We've already said farewell to Ares, Asher, Aereo, and Aeron. Just for a change of pace, here's someone who's not beginning with the letter A, who is now leaving. This time, Victarion has the heavy responsibility of ending an entire arc of his last chapter. Yes, much as we've constantly spoken about how the Ironborn and Dornish plots are incredibly mirrored throughout the book, they now completely diverge as the Ironborn bow out a mere two-thirds into the book. For comparison, Ariane doesn't finish the Dornish arc until five chapters before the very end, so there's a vast difference there. And it's very strange given how central the Ironborn arc is to Feast for Crows. Their inclusion and the hugely eventful Kingsmeet chapter are one of the most memorable characteristics of Feast, yet here they are ending early, even if we do hear some more news about them a little bit later, that last, next week in fact. For comparison, the other characters with two POVs have much bigger gaps between their chapters. Aaron and Ariane both have about 20 chapters between them. The gaps between all of Ayers and all of Sansa's chapters are also larger than the Victorian gap, a mere 10 chapters between 1 and 2 here. So this chapter is the first blip on the Euron trip. It's hard to take the Ironborn out of the Ironborn, apparently. Even with all his wonder and promise that he provided before, they still want to go back to what they know. And this causes Euron to rearrange his plans and therefore completely redirect Victorian's life. And it does make you wonder, actually, about Old Town's eventual fate if it wasn't originally on the list. Euron had planned to just straight, head straight off to the east. Well, maybe he's going to destroy Old Town on the way, who knows. But either way... Victorian, he discovers a road to vengeance at the end of this chapter. He finally finds a way that he can wound Euron, and unfortunately, it just so happens to involve our dear Daenerys. But that's for the end, let's get to the beginning. 
because the beginning is really the only time we see the Ironborn in their preferred environment, naval combat, and we get the sense that George really relished this opportunity to write a different battle. His cinematic writing comes out strong in the first paragraph with the Iron Victory surging through the water and snapping the oars as it crashes the, into the enemy. Victorian is playing the part as he leaps onto the deck and does a superhero marvel landing and we're immediately swept up in the rush and thrill of battle. There's no other way of putting it, whether we like Victorian or not, this battle looks and sounds cool from the off. There may yet be more of this kind of thing, but this is the most we've got so far. Get him, one man shouted. He's alone. Come, he roared back. Come kill me if you can. Yeah, it's pretty cool. If you're eagle-eyed and not completely caught up in the action, you'll see Victorion is giving us clues on his location by looking at the enemy's flags. A white rose we probably aren't supposed to recognise, but the golden one is pretty clear. There's zero time to think about this right now, but we're clearly near the reach already. So that's a pretty damn fast turnaround from the last chapter we saw the Ironborn in. We haven't exactly wasted our time. In a mere 10 chapters, we've gone from Euron winning the King's Moot to them having a monumental victory in the south after the clever western sailing plan. This is big news. The Shield Islands are not supposed to fall. But this is an era in which all the certainties of Westerosi life have been proven false. Slowly they've just been picked away as the series have gone on. But the Reach has escaped the majority of that. So now the South is truly entering into the war after all this time. And a lot of the remainder of this book is going to be in reaction to this one event. This first page is just pure Victorion in his element. No, he's not too pry, he's not too into the politics. But he is a fine fighter on the deck of his ship, there is no denying it. And quick enough, Victorian finds his rival captain and immediately engages in a duel, which I have to say is pretty cool and memorable, probably just for the respect shown at the end. Here's the quote. You of the rose, be you the lord of South Shield? The other raised his visor to show a beardless face. His son and heir, Sir Talbot Seri. And who are you, Kraken? You're deaf, Victorian bawled towards him. As Victorian notes, Talbot is talented. He gets four quick hits on, on Victorian's Kraken armour, but at the end of the day, strength and experience win over. Talbot reacts well enough to slam his sword down on Victorian, only for the Iron Captain to catch it in his gauntlet and throw it into the sea. And that's not supposed to happen. That's not how it goes. Talbot doesn't know what to do now. In the tales of old, it was very different, but the Ironborn are no knights of summer, and Victorian wins the battle, even if it costs him a hand injury that seems slight and unimportant right now, but is going to be spoken about a lot more once we get into dance, and probably after. The fight goes on, with Victorian echoing our own statement about this being what he was made for, and that's pretty much the end of it. We get a brief talk in Victorian's unique style, which is basically letting the other guy hit you because his best isn't getting through your armour, but your first hit will be the last thing he sees. And the battle is won both on this ship and the many surrounding them, as we realise this is no mere skirmish. This is, or was, a full-on battle. And again, the eagle-eyed will see that the survivors are racing back to the Manda. So okay, if they're on the sea and are headed towards the Manda, now we can really piece together where we are and work out that we're fighting on the Shield Islands. So mark that off on your list as another new location for Feast of Crows. Young Seri had been different. A brave man, thought Victorian. Almost Ironborn. That's pretty much the biggest uh, compliment you're going to get from Victorian, I think. So there's that respect we were talking about that really stands out to me and goes a long way to giving Victorian a more memorable place in our minds. He definitely doubles down on that respect for bravery and contempt for anything less when discussing the prisoners. Unfortunately, Victorian can't take much relish in the victory, because, as we're back in the Greyjoy Rebellion, he's doing the work while Euron gets the credit, merely because he's in management. They will attribute all of this to him, even when Victorian was bleeding and killing on the actual deck. Victorian gives a good argument of what we discussed during the Kingsmoot, the two carrots that Euron used to win. 
we firstly get an extended description of the exact foreign treasures that the captains drooled over, things they probably never thought they'd ever see. But Vitaeon's also smart enough to know how valuable the promise is, the possibility of glory and conquest. We see throughout the arc, whether at Windfell or Deepwood Mott, how much the Ironborn will seek glory, even with, or sometimes especially with, the threat of death. As discussed in the previous Ironborn chapters, this is too wild not to throw yourself into, so here they are. Meanwhile, Victorian reflects on his own obedience as he labels it himself. From Balon to the potential of Balon's sons, and now, stickingly, to Euron. We must say and respect this about Victorian. He sticks to his convictions, and it does make for a really interesting character arc as we explore him doing things for a king and family member he despises. Post-battle, Victorian heads down to the mysterious Dusky Woman, a new character for us and one that fans love to theorise over. We don't know much about her now, we won't know that much more by series end. All we really know is she's a mute and a gift from Neuron, making Viterion suspicious of her, though he has to remind himself to be that way over and over again. Neuron claims she was taken from a slaver bound for lease, but who knows how much stock we should put into his statements really. For now, all we need to focus on is how Victorian basically uses the Dusky Woman in the same way Jamie uses it in pain. Not for sparring, true, but as a sounding board for all his frustrations and emotional problems when there will definitely be no reply or sharing of said secrets. Oh, you know, that's the idea. A good many of those fandom theories have the Dusky Woman somehow reporting back to Euron or possibly even third parties. Currently, while Shield deals with his hand, which is also not for the last time, Victorian grumbles on about Euron's plan of taking the shields unawares. He is told to us for the first time here, not only the smart beginning of sending the ships up through the Manda to draw the majority of defenders away, but the revolutionary idea of swinging out into the Sunset Sea away from the coast and attacking out of the sunlight. Again, the Ironborn have never thought of such. They get swept along in Euron's wave, especially when they see its success. Victorian being Victorian, he broods on how much credit he should be receiving, for a plan is useless without having someone strong enough to enact it, he figures. Another task for the eagle-eyed, we get this first mention of wizards and Neuron even using blood sacrifice to gain favourable wins a la Melisandre and Stannis. Specifically, Victoria mentions three that Euron has enslaved. Later, we'll figure this out to be Priapri and his companions, and begin to see what purposes he is keeping them for, but that is much later in the uh, good old Forsaken chapter. Victorian continues with brooding, but shifts it to the Kinslayer curse as he searches for some loophole that will allow him to deal with Euron. Maybe just ordering his death instead of doing it with his own hands. Good work. It's entirely possible Euron did that with Balon, but Victorian is not made for debating such philosophy, even if it is a question we have asked ourselves. What are the specific rules of the Kinslayer curse? Victorian wants Aeron on hand to provide answers, but like Asha in her dance chapters, he figures Aeron or the damp pair to be disappeared. Again, we know the true answer, but it's a long way away. We also learn of Aeron really trying to enlist Victorian to keep fighting even after the King's Moot result, but Victorian insisted on honouring the outcome because, again, convictions. Aeron is convinced he will be able to rouse the small folk into a mini-rebellion. Unfortunately, we know that ain't happening for him. Speaking of Euron taking down his enemies, we find out our brief interaction with our favourite, Baylor Blacktide, was also our last. Not only was Baylor captured aboard his ship and then sliced into seven pieces on Euron's command, but Victorian and his ships were used to do it. Not because he wanted to, but because of obedience. It's the second time Victorian uses that word in reference to himself. Not duty, but obedience. It was that act with Baylor that earned him the dusky wound, but naturally, thinking of her makes him think of the wife that he killed because of Euron. Just put that in quotes there. He did it because of Euron. Okay, okay buddy, you, you still killed her though. It's your bare hands. But anyway... Victorian immediately wants to distract himself. He tries to do it with sex, 
but he can't, so he opts for wine on deck instead. And here we get the victory count. A loss of six ships with a gain of 38. So pretty resounding victory, thumbs up Victorian. But again, he can take no particular pride in it, because he knows he still has to face his brother. We now get an update on Asher, which is what we really want. Thankfully, she escaped Euron's clutches due to parking on the other side of the island that like we discussed. And we'll get a much better description of that escape in The Wayward Bride and Dance, which is a hell of a chapter that I just read this week. But it does show how many of the smart heads are now gone. Some do still remain, as we'll see in a minute. The reader is still here. The drum speaks up for logic a little bit later. Unfortunately, Victorian displays his own lack of brains when he proves us right that Ash's larger point in her Kingsmoot bid just went over the heads of everyone there. Here's his quote. How could she have ever hoped to win the captains of the kings, her with her pine cones and her turnips? Perhaps Victorian is calling his niece naive for thinking she could get away with such a thing, but I think it's more likely he doesn't even realise she was commenting on what the war had brought them and just thinks she's stupid for not bringing gold instead. We arrive at Lord Hewitt's town to see the devastation led by the Ironborn. It's interesting this town is so much larger than Lordsport back on the Islands. The Shield Islands are basically an afterthought if you look at a map of the Reach, yet one of their towns dwarfs the town closest to the ruling castle of the entire island islands. Goes to show how small and pathetic they are and why they'd relish sacking such a place as this. And sacked it is. There's burnt septs, loaded houses and shops, corpses lining the streets. It's a scene we're all too familiar with from the Dothraki Sea to the Riverlands, but again this is new territory to be experiencing such horror. We also come to an interesting distinction when Vitarian is horrified the women and children are being sold as slaves rather than fools. So we get to learn the difference and the bonuses, bonuses, right, of being a fool, but also that Euron is leaning away from that to go into straight slavery. Again, he is stepping outside the usual ironborn limits, and this choice seems to be popular of most. As Newt the Barber points out, it's all splitting hairs. Perhaps many of these poor souls feel the same. To Victorian, it's just another point against Euron and the traditions that Victorian holds so dear. On the way to see his brother is where we meet Roderick the Reader and the Drum, both of them being outspoken about this being a bad idea and trying to make the rest see the bigger picture, which is absolutely not an ironborn strength. Yes, they have won the day and taken the shields, and it's more than they've done for ages, in the south at least, but so far it's not so different from their previous wars, except House Tyrell is way better equipped to respond than House Stark was. Roderick wants logic, but only finds blind confidence and ego from the likes of Newt and Victarion as well. Even though both of these men would make fine allies against Euron, Victorian gets too swept up in the idea of fighting Jamie or Loras, or even Randall. We can probably get on board on that one. He completely forgets about Euron for a second, because fighting is just way more important than everything. Crucially, we learn Euron allowed the ravens to fly. He wants this attack to be heard about, as we'll see in future Cersei chapters. Again, I think it's next week. He wants his enemies to react in some way, so that has us guessing already what his next great plan will be. Inside the castle, well... We come upon one of the more unsettling scenes in the book. Personally, it reminds me of Kratos' keep after the mutiny. The captains are all enjoying themselves, let's put it that way. They've got tapestries for cloaks, they're using the best silverware. I don't think I need to go into detail about the abhorrent violence and abuse of the women in this chapter. This is like the Ironborn's Valhalla, a life of empty rocks and cloudy days, and then Euron comes along and they get to act like lords. They see it as repayment for their crappy life and Victorian almost seems alone in not wanting a part of that. What has he left for us? We have the glory. Glory is good, said Newt, but gold is better. That's the Ironborn, when you get right down to it. During the feast, we start covering what is one of Euron's more subtle qualities as a leader, his promotion of certain people in order to strengthen his allies or weaken his enemies. Hofo Harlaw comes along and tells us that Harris Harlaw 
he who was Asher's champion in the Kingsmoot chapter, has been named Lord of Greyshield, one of these captured islands. In fairness, Harris essentially took the castle himself, but the naming is pretty clever, and similar to what Littlefinger did with Nestor Royce. By giving Harris his own castle, Euron has basically moved one of Asher's biggest supporters over to his own side. Not only that, but as Hofo mentioned, that apparently makes him Roderick the Reader's heir. So that's two Harlows now indebted to him, and we know Hofo was already shopping his allegiance and his daughter around. Now he's very much linked to Euron staying in power so that he can keep his airship. And unfortunately now we come to the truly disgusting, the really cruel part that I don't want to linger on too much because it's just too horrible to think about. It's not enough to sack and kill and wreathe. Euron has to first make the ladies of the house serve them, then serve them naked, and have Lord Hewitt watch all this from a tied-up chair. I mean, and Euron is doing all this, at least in part, because of Thalia Flowers. She obviously has this dream of revenge that Euron is willing to take part in and exploit. Exploit is quite the word. Because of the Forsaken chapter, we know Euron is basically going to use her and spit her out. He knows how to get in people's heads and get them on his side by offering what they want. Offer all the dreams, only for them to be lined with poison. I think that's a pretty good clue on his eventual plans for the Ironborn in total. This, combined with Thalia's fate, really does show off how mad and evil Euron is. You can almost look at it like a dark Jon Snow timeline. If he'd been a different person, maybe he would have wanted this kind of thing. Victarion, for his part, does not like it. Not for any concern over the women, <laughs> I don't know, but because one of them might be Talbot Ceres' wife, and you should not shame the warrior. That's a recurring theme in this chapter. Victarion doesn't even think Hewitt should be shamed in this manner, because it reminds him of what Euron did to his own wife. The naming of new lords continues, not only with Harris being granted a shield, but Andric the Unsmiling, Maron Volmark, and Victarion's own Newt the Barber. Euron's gifts are poisoned, Victarion thinks. Something Thalia Flowers will find out, but Victarion already knows. In perhaps his smartest moment yet, I think it's a clear winner actually, Victarion lays out exactly why Euron is making all these surprising moves instead of the ordinary. Harris we've already outlined, but Euron has just weakened the drum, one of his loudest opponents, by taking his strongest man. He also controls a boy who could be used as a foe due to his bloodline in Maron Volmark, and he weakens Victarion himself by taking Newt the Barber. Realising that, Victarion tries to have Newt refuse, but of course, that's not going to work. Euron is dangling the type of carrot Newt never expected to taste. There's no way he can give that up and no way Victarion can match. So Euron weakens potential foes while keeping his own strength around him still. They've not gone anywhere. There's no sense in giving them away yet. He needs them for his much bigger plans. And it's another example of Euron just being different. There is a way these things are done, but he does the opposite. So Euron seems pretty much on top of the world right now. Everything he's planned is going right. And that looks to continue until old Roderick the Reader Harlor steps up and completely changes the momentum. Our decks will think of pigs and chickens on the voyage east, but we'll return with dragons. When? The voice was Lord Roderick's. When shall we return, your grace? A year? Three years? Five? Your dragons are a world away, and autumn is upon us. Got to admire Roderick just for speaking up in the first place. No one likes the downer at the party, first off, but he's also well aware of what happened to Baylor Blacktide and others. Roderick is not a fighting man, this could well mean his death. Yeah, he speaks up anyway. He speaks up against his king in front of all of his subjects, and he essentially wins. He feels in the logic and reality that Euron chases away with promises and gold and cool sayings about being the true storm, and he actually gets to a, an actual point. Roderick apparently hasn't even gone far enough when he dares to suggest Euron is lying about his greatest feat of going to Valeria, and everything gets very tense now. But Viterion is really having a good day brain-wise, and he can sense this is his moment, as he joins his voice to Roderick's, pointing out the flaws in the Eastern Voyage plan. And it works. 
They needed just one guy to bring it up, another to second it, and now half the captains have the same complaints. It's too far, it's too dangerous, and potentially all for nothing. Why risk all that when they know what fun they can have here? Look at all they've just given me. And there's the problem. Euron overplayed his hand. You can earn a lot of loyalty by finally getting the unpopular kids into a great party, but then they have zero motivation to risk everything for maybe a better party, maybe half a world away. Euron, what you've given us is really great. We really like it. We'd like more, to be honest. And look, we can have it here. We don't need to go with you. At the end of the day, the Ironborn just can't comprehend the wide world that Euron does. Their scope isn't that big. They were taken up by promises, sure, but now they've had a taste. They're leaning back towards the status quo and the enemies they know. They can have the Arbor and the Reach and Old Town. That's got everything they could ever want. And the Ironborn just aren't used to bigger pictures. Hence, Euron loses the room and retreats. This is the best possible news for Victarion, and for Aeron too if he were around to hear it. Before he can enjoy himself too much though, Victarion is summoned up to see his brother. And we thought public Euron was creepy enough, but now let's try private Euron. The one who holds meetings post-sex with his partner still on the bed. The one who doesn't want to cover up in front of his brother. And the one who asks weird questions about being able to fly. This mention of a flight dream as a boy really does set off the fairy senses. And the idea that he's a failed brand, or even a successful one as some may claim. And it's really amazing to think about in the way it just adds to his weird aura. All that magic stuff is supposed to be up in the north and beyond the wall, not down here in society. What do you want? The world. Firelight glimmered in Euron's eye, his smiling eye. So the creepiness just keeps on coming. George knows how to build his atmosphere. This kind of sentence would sound ridiculous if said by anyone else, but with this guy you get the sense he really means it. It isn't just talk to persuade the Ironborn. Euron generally thinks he will control or remake the world, whether with dragons or some other nefarious means. We are in the presence of a true danger to everything we know, the established world. We've really seen nothing like it. And again, that creepiness returns when we see that, or we hear, that allegedly Euron not only had a dragon's egg, but threw it into the sea. That seems insane on its own, but it's also the basis for a lot of good theories. On top of that, the Hornblower has died with lungs as black soot. So it wasn't a Melisandre-type production. If we take Euron at his word, that horn is real. And whether it controls dragons or not, it does something. Which is a lot to get our mind around. But Euron gets to the point. He will bow to public pressure. Okay. Sort of. He won't send all the ships to Marine, but he will send the Iron Fleet. In an effort to convince him, he tries to have Victarion drink Shade of the Evening, well, which will come up big in that Forsaken chapter. And it would have been fun to see Victarion drink it, to be fair, but he's being really smart today when he turns it down. They refused to eat of their friend's flesh at first, but when they grew hungry enough, they had a change of heart. Men are meat. Balon was mad. Aaron is madder. And Euron is maddest of them all. So we're getting real strong ties to Vargo though, aren't we? Cannibalism really is so rife in this second act of the series. I'd forgotten there was that, this much of it in Feast. And also, good confirmation of it being pirate pre-Euron captured. Good confirmation also of his insanity and cruelty. But here, Euron makes the pitch. Go get Daenerys, bring her back, and you can have the sea stone chair. But that isn't enough, because Victorian remembers how poison Euron's gifts are, and he's thinking about the last time they had to disguise wives. So much so, that Victorian decides if Euron stole his wife, for that is how he sees it, even if he actually physically beat her to death. Oh, no, it's not my fault, I only did the beating. Then Victorian will steal one back and make them even. Also, don't ignore that Victorian only really responds when Euron suggests he is too frightened to take on such a task. It might be Victorian's smartest ever chapter, but he's still predictable at the end of the day. And that noise you can hear is Zelda coming to join me just for the end of the podcast here, and accidentally turning my PlayStation on, so thank you Zelda for that. 
which Heron has been moaning about being the service guy all chapter long, but now he signs up for it. Of course, it's because he finally believes he can get revenge on his brother and pay him back without being a kinslayer, technically. Earlier in the chapter, he wonders if there's anything Euron cares about so he might be able to take it away, like his wife was. Although, again, not really. Now, he's finally found something, and he's going to take advantage of it. She might not be present in this book, but obviously this whole storyline has us incredibly worried for Daenerys. The horn problem is one thing for her dragons, but what about the potential of her actually winding up with either of these men? Both are absolutely horrible choices, but especially the idea of her being with Euron after the cruelty that we've just seen or have seen or will see. No, thank you. And we have to wait so long to find out whether anything comes of this story that we really don't know. Because here endeth the Ironborn arc, at least the accumulative Ironborn. We're going to get a lot more Theon, a lot more Asher, and some Victorian as well in Dance and beyond. But this little group, especially the Euron's little group, this is kind of it. Yes, we have the Forsaken, but really we still don't know what he's actually doing, what he's really up to. And I had intended to have a little bit of a section here on thoughts on Euron's future and the way he's, what's the word, kind of exploited the old way and how the Ironborn leaned towards that. We've kind of discussed it already. Um, but I think I'm going to leave it there because truly Euron, he is one of the more analysed characters and I don't think I'd have anything that you haven't heard before from Paul Quentin or many, many other sources as well. Suffice to say, well, yes, this is last time we really see him, at least in the published series, but we know he's looming. He's all, almost like an opposite shadow. We've got this ever encroaching shadow from the north that we know is at some point going to pay off really big and we've kind of got a kind of mini version in the south he's just looming down there we don't know what he's going to do but we know it's going to be weird and magical and probably really really bad for everyone and we've just got that sense of again impending doom and of awfulness as he comes to i think the best way to describe Euron, and again i'm sure someone has said this at some point is we've been witnessing the game of thrones this whole time and Euron's just going to come along and flip the board he's just going to kick the table over because he's mad is mental but we shall have to wait okay everybody that is just three chapters for you today and yet almost exactly the same length as usual so don't worry you're getting your listeners worth now as for next week we're back to our normal four and it's a double character today which we don't i don't think we've got at all yet through feast but we are next week because we have two jamie chapters hello zelda again come to see me we'll start off with jamie four that's at castle darrier we're going to be seeing loris again hello loris We'll then have Brienne 6, The Choir Isle. Yes, a very important, amazing chapter again, of course. Then on to Cersei 7, where we hear about this Ironborn attack and Loras volunteers to go off to Dragonstone. And Well, Cersei thinks she's doing well and then the chapter ends with her not doing so well, which we could say about any chapter, really. And then finally, we'll end with Jamie 5, which is our return to Riverrun. And you know how happy that makes me because I love Riverrun. But that is next week. Thank you, everybody, for turning up for part eight. Thank you to our wonderful patrons, as always. And don't forget to let me know about your non-Soul Vice and Fire series, the ones that really just get into your heart, and I think you know the feeling I'm trying to describe. Mine is Gentleman Bastard sequence, of course. I was talking about the Wheel of Time a little bit. Let me know if you're a big fan of that. And yes, Princess Mononoke, just always in my head every time I watch it. I love that film. I might watch it again. Yeah, it's just the kind of guy I am. But in the meantime, I'll get on with editing this and giving it all to you guys. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.